The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of our History of Gear series, we talk with Tracy Cottingham, a clothing architect. We talk about technical apparel, her days at Nike and Columbia, and the importance of preserving apparel and product history. Joining me today is Tracy Cottingham, uh, a clothing architect, designer, formerly of Nike, Columbia, sportswear, early winners. I'm, I'm probably missing a couple companies in there. Consultant. Um, you know, you've had have a, had a lot of experience in this industry, and uh, we we originally got connected through our mutual interest in preserving the history of of this industry. Um, so I appreciate you jumping on a Zoom call in the middle of really kind of a crazy world we're living in right now, and during the age of of COVID. So appreciate you taking some time to talk. It's great to see you. Well, thanks. Thanks, Chase. And I think one thing that's really leaving an impression right now, I don't know how sales are going in the retail market for outdoor, but I sure know that if there's ever a revival of everyone wanting a piece of nature and isolation and outdoors, now is the time. And I'm staying locked down following governor's orders, but I live in a beautiful place, so I don't feel like I'm giving up anything but I do know that those outdoor spaces are being very well loved right now. Well, you're, I, I think you're right. I've, I've talked to a few different people. Um, I talked to uh, someone who works for a, a running shoe company recently on, uh, on running. We talked with someone from Specialized recently and they said shoe sales and bike sales are up, right? People want to get out. They want to reconnect with, with the outdoors People are getting cabin fever a little bit. Um, and there's, you know, it's great to know that there's safe ways of getting outside and, and participating. And, um, you know, I think people are discovering new hobbies and people are trying to connect with the outdoors. I mean, we just talked a little bit off air about our both getting, in, getting into chickens, right? So there's, it just kind of seems like in general, people are trying to find ways to connect with nature in, in different ways. Um, but I do want to put in a pitch at this time uh, that the, com- the towns and rural areas near some of our national parks and national monuments are super vulnerable. Mm-hmm. A lot of aging population, very, very low medical support and one case here can take our EMTs out for two weeks. And right. so the care and caution needs to be present in anyone's outdoor pursuits if you're traveling outside your area. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we originally got connected um, when we, I mean, we started building this, this outdoor recreation archive at the university. And then you and I got connected and we finally met when we could meet in person. 
um, in, in Portland at the functional fabric fair. And, um, you know, that, that was a really fun event, um, to be able to see an, an, an emphasis on, on preserving the history of, of the outdoor industry. Um, so we, we got connected when we really started to double down on this history project and preserving print materials in our, our archive at the university. And, and then we were able to meet in person when we could meet in person and go to trade shows in October of, of last year at the functional fabric fair. And I, it was really fun to be able to go to that and talk to you and see for those who weren't able to attend down the middle of that trade show, this emphasis on telling stories from the past and connecting, you know, designers looking towards the future, um, being able to connect them to the past. And there was kind of, I don't know how many different um, kind of windows, you know, there with, uh, with a a piece of apparel and then some marketing material from the time um, kind of showing the evolution of gear and, and influential pieces from the time. Um, mm-hmm. that, that was really well fun done. to, be able to well see. Yeah, that was really well done. Um, and I think that, that was kind of a fun place for us to be able to talk about the importance of preserving stories, uh, preserving the artifacts and, and materials from, from the past. Uh, but not only that, preserving the stories and, and the people, um, you know, th- that go into the, the creation of, of these products. Um, and so that's kind of where that started, uh, just for context for those for those listening. And um, we'll we'll get into that a little bit today. It's like why you feel passionate about that, about preserving stories and preserving the history of of this industry. Um, but I think in order to do that, it's it's helpful to go back and and learn a little bit about how you got into it. And uh, so I guess what was your first exposure to the outdoors or the outdoor industry or product? I guess what what was your introduction? That uh, it goes way back. I had the good fortune of being uh, born in the Pacific Northwest and with n- beautiful uh, mountain and sea environment everywhere. And my grandfather and grandmother on both sides, but primarily my mother's side, uh, were very avid outdoors people and helped found the Washington Alpine Club in the Seattle area, which is still active today, adjacent to the Mountaineers. And I grew up with stories of them walking from the top of Queen Anne Hill in Seattle for a two-day trip to Green Lake, which is now all urban metropolitan area. And, you know, stories of how it taking a week to get to Mount Rainier, where they would work on their climbing and outdoor adventures. And so certainly growing up with parents that that was just a course of who we were. And we would often just spur the moment, pack up our gear, which we didn't have much, a pot for cooking over a stove, two sleeping bags that would zip together that three kids and two parents would climb inside of and hit into our, the areas that we love to go and never saw anyone, just the elk and other animals. And, uh, but I, on gear, we just used our normal clothes and that 
I'm not remembering any bad rainstorms, so they must have been able to just plan sporadically to go and miss the big rainstorms, unlike today's permitting systems where you spend years getting a permit and you're going to go rain or shine. But I was known in my family as uh, Mr. Clean, which was a cleaning product of the time, because I would get totally filthy, and as we came out to civilization, turn all my clothes inside out. I adapted to sewing at a very, very young age of, uh, and was given a full adult sewing machine when I was five. And it was mine, not one to share, and that I kept on the floor of my room and sat on the floor and pedaled the machine with my knee on the electric pedal, not a treadle machine. But we didn't, uh, there wasn't product to buy to be safer in the outdoors. Uh, you used Army-Navy surplus, you used whatever you had, but my family was good at making things for what we needed. When an infant carrier was needed, needed, my father would make it. When ski apparel was needed, my mother would make it. When bike racks were needed, my father invented this really ingenious bike rack for our Volkswagen van. So a lot of what we see today, which is very exciting, just make it upcycle materials, use what you have, and um, use your ingenuity. Do you, do you kind of see yourself growing up in a time where it's like there was a lot of people still making things, but there's a transition towards you know, buying brands, you know, buying new, what, were, do you feel like you were kind of in an in-between stage there? No, I was at the very early stages. There really weren't brands in the ski industry somewhat, which was a little bit um, higher level income potentially, or uh, influences coming from Europe where their textile innovations were well beyond what we had in the U.S., uh, stretch insulation or the shoulder, double weaves, those products were coming into the ski industry, but generally from Europe. And it was still an industry for the outdoor industry based on uh, military spec materials that were put into uh, parachute bags or luggage gear or, you know, uh, uh, parachutes actually, or uh, uniforms. And that was where most of the materials were coming out of in the early years of the, what I'm going to call an outdoor industry. And those materials were very limited to get in color and in, uh, uh, in smaller quantities. You had to buy very large quantities. But the, um, the brands themselves generally I wouldn't consider a brand. They were usually a one product or a one uh, item company. So you would be a hat company like Columbia Sportswear Company or Smiley Hats in Seattle made ski hats. Or you would be a stretch pant company like Rafi in Seattle primarily did pants in the 60s, as did Raven Industries in Spokane. So you got a niche based on the materials you sourced, the space you had, the machines you had, and your entire company was located in one building. And so 
you didn't have this brand building. You did to a certain extent, but your brand meant one or two items. And of course the brands, it was a very slow process to be able to add to your inventory based on economics, based on how much you could sell, based on your expertise and your operators that were running the machines. A lot of machines are built to do, work with one type of material. And so you're doing knits or sweaters or you're going to have sweater machines and machines that can um, uh, put those together. Well, it was it seems like that, I mean, just where the country was too, a company like Frostline Kits could still be viable, right? Because there was people were had the skill set, like you were taught to sew. That was something that people largely knew how to do. So this was really, yeah, still, you know, that, you know, like you said, not a lot of brands really taking over and, and brand being this, you know, in the outdoor industry being this, um, you know, being as powerful as, as it is today. Um, there, there wasn't a central brand going out to buy all these different products and putting them together into one catalog or one sales point the way that can be done today. Right. So each individual company marketed their own little niche of product. Right. So how did you, how did you discover that you wanted to design product? Was it poor experiences that you had with, with product? Was it, what was it that, that got you into product design? Needing to make things. And the, I mean, it goes back to making anything I needed. And when I was in elementary school, I needed toys. So I made teddy bears and I set up a production line of teddy bears. I employed my friends. Mm. I was in fifth fourth and fifth and sixth grade, and I upcycled all the materials going out to manufacturers in Seattle to buy their scrap. And so had a market, sold them in a few boutiques in Seattle. So I learned to make money by making things. But the big step into the, the actual industry uh, I guess, stroke of luck. You're in the right place at the right time, born at this, the time women did not, girl students did not have opportunities to go into metalwork, woodwork, auto mechanics. It was closed off. And it's really hard to say, but I was banned. I could not take a woodshop class in middle school. I could not take any of the uh, male oriented classes. I could take home economics, but I could already sew and cook, but I still couldn't get out of that. And it still upsets me today, but my mother had it worse, right? We improve (laughs) every decade. And uh, so the the skill set that really started me on this path is a, a program that was unique in the entire country, is a woman teacher from home economics that it's, you know, had cohorts of male teachers that could teach woodshop, could teach metal shop, the, the male trades of the day, but she couldn't. She was teaching home act, but she decided to put together an industrial sewing factory at my high school. Hmm. She got the funds to put in a building. 
and we got all the machines donated from industry in Seattle, which was a good manufacturing town, you know, with um, not what it is today. And the her motivation was to teach all of us, boys, girls alike, that we could sit at a machine and produce something with a production line um, attitude. And she then also brought in industry experts to talk to us. And so it was like a lightning strike one day when this is a woman you may want to interview, even though the ski industry is out of the true outdoor industry today. But in the 70s, the outdoor industry and the ski industry, from my view in Seattle, was combined. Climbers were wearing the best ski uh, um, ski pants, ski sweaters, ski hats. And so it was really a, a, a combined unit. But Winnie Jones was brought in to talk to us about her background. And uh, she'd been the main only designer at Rafi Sportswear Company for many years and then became the lead designer. And she would love to talk to you, I'm sure. But she inspired me. I took her on as a mentor in high school. I wrote down the name of the school she went to in Europe. And eight years later, I went to that school. Let's see, six years later, I went to that school. And there was no real place in the entire world that was focused on technical clothing. There were fashion schools, New York, LA. There were, um, you know, other places, but there was nothing that that I had access to that, except for learning from the industry. So I tailored my education around athletics at the university and some textile sciences, engineering to some degree, business and some design. But throughout my entire education, from high school, a couple years working, producing what we wanted to produce, fed every week to ski instruct in, having really good mentors, tailoring my education to uh, anything I felt I could pull in to be an important strength. And then my first job, full-time job, I landed at Nike with one of just less than a handful of people in clothing, making and designing and producing all of their product. Wow. Well, what, what was the name of the university that you went to? University of Washington in okay. Seattle. Yeah. I, you know, I decided I was not going to go to a fashion school in New York or LA to even gain the skills because it wasn't the world I wanted to be in. It wasn't the world I wanted to learn from. And I wanted to stay in the Pacific Northwest. Right. Well, then you mentioned it was a European program right. too. What was that? I went to a trade school in Vienna, Austria, and that started students young, even as <clears throat> young as 13, as most of us Americans know about the trade school system but they have a lot more access to industry and they also hire a lot more people directly from the industry to be teaching. And that's something that, you know, any of the fashions, well, today that's changed to some degree, but uh, back then my teacher at the University of Washington specialized in boutique hand tailoring. 
hand bound buttonholes, right. hand done, pressing everything to make perfect men's suits. And I knew back then I really didn't need to, to work on that. Right. Right. Well, that's great that you were able to cater your education, kind of build your own pathway into the industry. Uh, we're even today, largely, well, whenever I talk to people, it's, it's kind of a winding, winding pathway into this industry. Um, and it seems like most people um, have to do what you do did, which was just carve your own path. Right. And, and most people don't even do that. They kind of stumble into it. Um, yours seemed a lot more conscious than most people. It was a direct path. It also, I was born female in an engineering family. And so, you know, genetics, I'm sure play a big part into what we're good at and what we, our brains are. My 3D modeling, my I took a test in high school that was uh, how do you fold all these intricate flat patterns together and what does it make on the other end? And I got the top, one of the top scores, 99th percentile, and all the military universities were trying to pull me in. But that was not the path I wanted to take. Well, it seems like a, a different approach to clothing design, apparel design. Is that part of what leads you to call yourself more of a clothing architect? Where, where do you see the difference? Well, the big difference is I combine the, the design, the research, the analytical part of uh, the psychology of design, the analytical part of really studying history of and where the market is going, where do we want the market to go and help creating new needs. But when I am putting designs together to present to any company, I have to know how it's going to be built. I have to see the whole thing in my mind. I have to know the materials. I have to know the constraints of the machines at the factory. I have to know a lot more than just making a conceptual sketch. That is one of my weaknesses. I can't just freeform make something that I, I have to know how to build it, how it's going to be built. And that's how an architect works. Right. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you're living in the clouds. No, and I also, to make sure my ideas and products, once we have a concept that seems to be right that we want to produce or sample, I the best success for me is to be able to do the blueprint. Every part of the uh, spec package, uh, even de detailed diagram drawing showing the ins and outs and layers and how everything goes together. And that's where the term architect, I generated that when it was pretty difficult to tell people what I do. Uh, clothing designer doesn't, it, it conveys this fanciful job of an illustrator, someone working on pretty pictures, right. handing it off to someone who's going to handle the details and rework it for the factory. Right. Is that something you or an approach to design that you developed prior to jumping in at Nike? Or is this something that you've kind of developed over time, you know, working for some of these larger brands? It's a very good question, Chase. Because 
I can draw, but I'm not a sketch artist. I've always, I can't just free form. Uh, I can make beautiful technical drawings. But my biggest worry coming out of school, and during the school years, I worked in factories, but I would be able to do everything from concept through to making the pattern, going and sitting at the machine and working it up. Much today that Arcteric still follows that model mm -hmm. is that you need to be able to build it as well as design it. But I didn't have to draw anything because you have it in your head and you just make the pattern and you build the product. I was just looking at a pair of bike panniers yesterday that I made for an epic bike trip in the 70s when panniers didn't exist. Or, and, uh, and I was, the zippers are corroded, but you know, I didn't do any drawings. You just go and build it. And the, so my big worry was going to a company where I knew I would have to draw and hand off to a pattern maker. And so my year spent in Europe out of school, I knew that was my weakness. And I turned out to, I was a guest student, so I didn't have a regulated set of classes. So I just went and took all the technical drawing classes, everything that really developed that skill, because I knew it was a weakness. Right. Oh, that's, that's really great self-awareness. I don't, I don't think most people have that kind of self-awareness. And I learned how to make 50 drawings in an hour of, and not settling for the first, second, or third drawing, which is often how school programs do. You have time constraints. You're, you know, designing for what you know you can make personally. And I had one instructor in Austria that came out of production and I still, to this day, attribute my style to Baumgartner, Herr um, uh, Frau Baumgartner, who would sit and force us as students to make 50 drawings of the same thing. Wow. Yeah. Well, that, I, I'm glad that you kind of gave that background. That gives us me more of a glimpse into, I guess, just your approach and, and how different that is. Um, you know, I, I like the comparison of, of that approach versus what people think a fashion designer does, right? The conceptual, the, the, the pretty pictures. Um, and the outdoor, I think your approach lends itself so much more to the art, uh, the outdoor industry and performance and <laughs> function and, um, and, and really everything that you're saying, I, I was thinking of Arcteryx when, when you, uh, when you were describing that, it's very much the approach there. Um, what, wh what were, those early days at, at uh, you know, or your time at Nike, like so you, you get the job, what, what was the role again? And, and, and what was, what was the company like at that time? This was eighties? Early eighties. And I had a nice uh, five, almost six years with them and would probably still be there today, except for a large downturn they had in the uh, mid to late eighties. And the, the thing that I had that I still carry with me today is we did not have the boundaries that most companies have today with certain jobs and this is your area that you work in. Of course, we had areas we had to uh, can to to look towards, but I 
I don't know if this was a product of Nike or product of me, but early in my years at Nike, uh, I was working in the largest volume area in Nike, which was track suits, warm-ups. I was a competitive runner. I was a competitive athlete. And I was the first Nike designer outside of one footwear designer. Jeff Hollers did have athletic backgrounds, but the clothing uh, – we did not have the athletic backgrounds of the, except for one swimmer early in those years. And I really felt that my background in athletics, very national competitive athletics, uh, was a big help to me. But early on, I was pulled out of the core apparel line where you needed to put out a line every six months to special force that Phil Knight wanted to have and I was with one other person pulled from footwear became the special forces which is now the let's say advanced products and we were given no boundaries no parameters uh, except one time we were told to go after Levi's Mm. but do a Nike product that would be what a 501 gene is to Levi and through those years if I needed to find create a textile, I would just go to whatever source I felt, but engineer a new textile. And that would take two or three, you know, that took time. It also gave me access to direct to the athletes that Nike had under their wings. Uh, as, as new products came into line, I was working with the top runners, uh, uh, um, Alberto Salazar, uh, John Benoit, Carl Lewis, John McEnroe. And so we meet with them. And as much as I'd like to say they knew what they wanted, they didn't. We still had to be able to learn their personalities, find out what they might accept, and slowly work the concepts to where they would feel comfortable. And Mary Decker Slaney was a really good example is she did not like to change what she was racing in. And she held the, uh, every single distance uh, that women could run back then record American records, but she would not take the new developments that I was working on. The first one piece running suit that converted a, a sloppy look from more like what the guys were wearing with a jersey and a separate bottom to a one-piece suit that resembled a swimsuit, which today seems normal, but back then it was not. And same thing with running tights. I did have a hand in putting running tights and lycra on runners. And my kids hate to say that I was part of that. And it took time. People still wanted to wear a running tight with a short over it to cover up what they normally would wear, which was a short and long underwear you would wear with shorts on top of them. So with my partner in crime, Tom Dadarian, he came out of footwear and he was kind of like a mad scientist. And together we put things together, his vision, which I would often roll my eyes at, but I never said no. I never said, let's not try this. And we went to town on reworking, redesigning what runners 
wear and it was successful, but it would take time. But I mentioned Mary Decker Slaney, she would change. And so I went to the third tier runner on the Nike team and gave her my new prototypes. She ran in an Olympic trials and got all the press cover of Sports Illustrated. Mary Decker Slaney called me the next week or the next day and wanted one too. So the psychology of how you change has been present in my career since Nike days. And so I attribute the slow process of having a vision that's three to five to six years, potentially 10 years out there, and then backtrack and slowly put the steps together to get there. You cannot get there in one season, two seasons, three seasons. And often when I'm presenting a design to a company, I may lay out a five-year plan, even though we just go with the first part. Because I need to know where I'm going, and I need to be able to show and prove why that first step is necessary to get to the, the real vision. Wow. That, that seems like a very different approach. Um, but I, I love that. Um, what, what, what do you feel like some of the key lessons um, from, from the Nike days were for you? Well, Nike, but I also want to speak to Columbia Sports yeah. Company. Right. So with the Nike days is all skills are needed and there was no one to teach us. So you just learn to go with what you feel you need to do, which is a lot of legwork, a lot of research, a lot of uh, groundbreaking stuff with the textiles and the working closely with the manufacturing, pushing the manufacturers to change. And that took time. How do you get a mach uh, machine that they haven't ever worked with before into a factory? And I was able to, with Nike, go back and work with some of the contract factories I worked with in Seattle as a machine operator. And now I could go back and tell the owner what I wanted. And that mm. felt really good. But to really know that my vision doesn't just use a crystal ball. It comes from really understanding the sport from personal experience, from major research to understanding the textiles, understanding the market and what costs and what value uh, is important to how do you sell to the sales reps first and foremost, which most brands still rely on, a, wholesale brands rely on a sales force. And that that was key. And I, I learned that at Columbia Sportswear Company. And that if it took me two years to come up with a product ready for market, sales and marketing, if you throw it at them at a sales meeting and say, here, go sell this, they have not adjusted. They have not seen what I have experienced or a design team has experienced. And so to involve the sales and marketing early on, even if you're letting the cat out of the bag, 
whether whatever is changing from the silhouette to the sport to the colors to the textiles, whatever it is that you feel is going to be the key selling points that humans take time to change. Look at us in mask wearing. How many of us were wearing masks on day one? How many took a month? How many took two months? Finally, we're seeing some progress, and I hate to bring politics into this, but humans take time to change. Some people take shorter period of time to change, like I spoke about with Mary Decker Slaney, um, or longer time to change. So to involve the sales team, to get them on your side early, I think is a skill that is not always uh, present in product uh, design and marketing. Oh, that's great. Well, how long did you spend at Nike versus Columbia? Just about the same time. Okay. Uh, five, six, five, six years each and plenty of time where at Nike I started with just a couple of three people working there weren't separate designers there there were we had sample makers and a sample shop in-house which is great when i think back at that time but you did everything you did everything from a to z to get that product to market and so we didn't have assistance we didn't have people you you took a project and took it all the way through to the manufacturing side. And same with Columbia. So I wrote every spec. I did every lab test. We could send it out to where we would have an internal lab at Nike to where I could go and, and watch them doing the tests. But in most cases, I still had to understand every test we were going to do. I had to had to do all the specifications and this was done by hand this was before computers right what what was your role at columbia i was the product designer product developer uh for all categories wow with no with hats hunting t-shirts fishing kids men's women's sportswear outerwear everything jeez how do you even do that? How do you how do you cover all of those? Well, you don't have time to uh, think too hard. You don't have time to overdevelop. And the huge success of Columbia during that time, which was its rocket ride to success, is we had five materials hmm. maximum in our outerwear line, and that included the lining and insulation. Right. Wow. And so we weren't having to go to uh, using 100 different sources or 50 different sources. And therefore, the price, once the volume started going up, no one in the world could touch Columbia based on price, based on our sheer quantity of those individual materials. This is something that I today have valued more than anything of what I've learned that goes way beyond design. And then this goes back to Tim Boyle at Columbia Sportswear Company, his loyalty to his customers. Mm. And that he, his, his whole family has, but his, him in particular, that as Columbia soared to the top of the charts in volume and, and through the 
80s and into the 90s, they never lost sight of who supported them through their really hard lean years. And that was the Army-Navy surplus stores. It was the low-level tier of distribution. And they never, ever let that uh, tier go because they were so important. So the relationship building and the relationships that a brand has are more important than any product they build. Hmm. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to change uh, pace a little bit. How did you start getting into, well, I guess, uh, when did you start developing a, a love of, of the history of the industry and a, an appreciation and, and feeling a need to, to help preserve stories or, um, I guess what, what led you to that? And that's kind of, again, how we got connected was this mutual interest in that. Well, history, if you don't have a love of history and this goes for any topic, then you're going to repeat mistakes from the past, but you're also going to learn about the cyclical nature of humans Mm -hmm. and I can chart it like a mathematician of the different cycles that continue to repeat themselves through the entire lifetime that I've witnessed outdoor product. And that includes sport, you know, I guess any outdoor and sport related product. Uh, I follow fashion only to understand it and throw what over the shoulder, what I don't want to encompass, but the history piece When it comes to innovations and, uh, well, the entire design cycle, you have to look forward, but you have to look back. You have to know, again, where you're wanting to go and what's new and innovative, but you also need to make sure you have the tools from the past. And from collecting textiles for my entire life, to collecting outdoor product. Uh, There's so much we can learn from looking at the 10th Mountain Division jackets or the uh, military spec pieces or into the early uh, 60s of what was truly innovative back then, but we think doesn't work today. Really in any field of not knowing history and not knowing the cyclical nature of humans and the psychology of design, all those three pieces together with, uh, you know, the things that get thrown at us today. It'll be interesting how the COVID changes design, but it's all related. And the historical piece, I've always been interested in the textiles, keeping records of the textiles and, uh, I have an extensive textile library, but the the of understanding the old garments and the old history, it's amazing what you can learn from a 10th Mountain Division jacket, from World War II, from military uh, uniforms, from uh, ski uh, fashions from the 60s and 70s. There's it's. You know, from the construction techniques, if you're starting from scratch every season, you're going to be missing some 
really great innovations that may, may no longer be present in our products. And fortunately, I have space for an art large archive. And but through companies, some companies had budgets to be purchasing uh, product for uh, record keeping and other companies don't. So you would need to rely on other methods. But ever since I've been freelancing, which has been uh, quite a number of decades freelancing, I have really valued having my own archival collection. It didn't have to stay with a company if I changed a company. And, uh, you know, I could pull out everything from the World War II garments all the way up to some of the first Arcteryx garments that no longer have that much make in them to many of the pieces that I've worked on that didn't make it. The archive history that I have, I'm very interested to have it go someplace. And as soon as some time can be allowed to process into the record books working with you. But I also had conversations with the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle that upon opening in a new building showcased their garment industry, but they did not show archival garments that were actually made in Seattle. They had garments in the museum that were made in Asia. And so I took that uh, took that point to the curator and said, you, you know, that I have garments, to, you know, I should be able to get to you. Uh, I haven't followed up on that. So. Well, I, I think, I mean, you and I both share that passion for preserving the items, the documents, um, the stories from, from the people. Um, I, 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 I'm encouraged because I keep finding individuals like you, like people like Bruce Johnson who are out doing the work. Um, but I, I, I'm also surprised that there's not as, as much as I thought there would be, you know, you have brands who take care of their history more than others and have their mm -hmm. own uh, collections. Um, but no one else can access or, or appreciate those materials, right? They can't be studied. They can be studied internally, which I can understand in some ways, brands wanting to protect certain things. Um, but I think we both share that, that interest in how do we make these stories and lessons more accessible for people, whether yeah. that is the item itself, whether that's an early sketch that someone could look at, um, whether that's, you know, a conversation like we're having right now, it's how do we make those stories more accessible for the next generation of designers who can, you know, hopefully develop an appreciation. Um, you know, my, my fear is, you know, students going out into the industry and not knowing, you know, where the industry came from. I, I think there'll be better designers, better people for understanding where they fit within this larger story. And any archive that you are able to put together accessible to people out in the industry, because there are so many archives that for lack of space, before computers even, were just trashed. And I witnessed some of that firsthand, and it was really upsetting that that archive wasn't valued. Right. Do you see a growing interest in in archival work and preservation, um, 
what what's your thought on from an industry perspective or are companies feeling some regret for throwing out their old archives is there a renewed interest do you what do you see from a company perspective or even just from a consumer perspective it seems like people like something that's heritage that has a history um but people also like something that's brand new at the same time where where do you see things kind of shaking out well, I do believe that there's a lot of changeover in companies from companies being purchased or changeover of people. And I, as an example, Mammut in Switzerland has gone through a whole upturn with management and with people, like almost 100% turnover. And therefore, the history is no one is there holding the the strings to the past and that's a worry but they don't seem to to care and i may be misspeaking because i haven't worked with both entities but i'm assuming going forward that they do want a new look they do want a new marketplace and a new um customer base and so a moonstone did something similar in the 90s is the company was purchased by a run of like four different companies in a series, not like four and five, or I forget how many years apart, but that's the archive I was referring to was just out in a warehouse that was going to be just destroyed. And yet you can't, as an employee or a freelance person, take materials home. That's stealing. You know, you you can't go and rescue things. You're not in a position to do that, but you're in a position to witness that that didn't feel good. So I can't really speak across the broad spectrum, but I do know as companies change ownership, there's often a severing with the past. So with that Moonstone collection, it's interesting you brought up Moonstone because Bruce Johnson and I were actually just talking about the Arcata California companies and Moonstone being one of those that, that came out mm-hmm. of that region. Um, and uh, both of us kind of not, not knowing for sure what happened with that. And all, all we knew was it had been handed, handed around and, and at Columbia at one point, has it or maybe still has the rights is is what I believe they still have the rights uh but it went from uh Fred who was the designer and possible owner in Arcata and I have a close friend who knows much more of that history uh if you wanted to speak with Rob Goosenhaven on the Moonstone um change because uh but in the history that I learned, I took over on their second gyration for being the global design manager, design director, when Jerry Sportswear and Moonstone were put together, but they were owned by Amorex in New York. And then it was sold. Oh, let me go back. So Moonstone was first sold to Esprit. And as you probably know, the history of Esprit uh, has a mountaineering history, uh, Doug Tompkins. And then it was revived with a whole new logo, a whole new uh, fabulous line. I still have pieces from that, and, and it's still some of the best revival of an outdoor company I witnessed. And it didn't do well because it 
went a little bit more skates and snowboard image at that time, but I loved it. And then um, I got hired in when it was bought out by Amorex through Jerry, the Jerry Sportswear Company out of Denver, was moved to Seattle. And a couple of years of working on global design for Moonstone, we really honed it back into a technical outdoor brand. But then it was purchased by Pacific Trail in Seattle. And that the they wanted the Jerry brand, I believe, and not the Moonstone, but the Moonstone went with it. And then Pacific Trail overall was bought out by Columbia. Mm. Yeah, this uh, you can see how easily things get lost. What, exactly. You know, when when brands are are passed around and bought and sold, and um, which is unfortunate, especially yeah. where you know when the founder is is separated from the brand, there isn't that affinity for for the the stuff, right? The material. Right. Um, so you know, and that's where we come in. You know, at the, you know, at a university level or a museum, hopefully we can be a resource to prevent some of that from happening um, in the future. Um, you know, because there's, for a lot of people, you know, in our program, they've never heard of Moonstone. I didn't know anything about Moonstone, um, mm-hmm. but there's stories to be told there. And there's, they're a piece of this larger story that, um, you know, is really important. So. Right, exactly. And that's the history. I walked into a resale outdoor shop in Jackson, Wyoming last spring. I was working with Patagonia on their Warnware Traveling Repair program which has been just amazing to be part of and there were two narrowly new moonstone sleeping bags that at the time were about eight hundred dollars a piece in the 90s and they were matching sleeping bags i picked them up for hundred dollars a piece and the people at the or 75 a piece and the people at the counter had no idea Wow. But they were. And they were, it was a dry loft gore fabric, so a waterproof bag, 800 filled down. And the name of the textile on there had no meaning and my lucky day. It's so funny you mentioned that because Bruce in our Arcada conversation, he said the same thing. He said, I was at a strip mall and there was, you know, they were doing a closeout and there was moonstone shirts. Mm-hmm. And picked up a few. It's like, wow, yeah. that's really interesting that, that you brought up the same thing. But Right. Um, and since you know, the outdoor industry doesn't have the global iconic following in the same way that the sports athletic does, so Nike pieces from the 80s are worth a lot. I'm sure I'm sitting on a gold mine and I'm not sure I want to part with them yet, but that with the old outdoor gear, it doesn't have the same market value for resale, except if you get to the right venues in England um, that really value them in some other places. But let me know if you find someplace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it is interesting. I'm glad you brought that up, really the resale market and yeah, anything vintage Nike yeah, there's 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 a huge interest in that. It's it'll be interesting to see if any of that crosses over into outdoor. Um, although, you know, s- streetwear kind of likes to pull from outdoor, right? And yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of vintage North Face pieces that are out there that it's you know leans more on the streetwear side, and yeah. so it is interesting to see people looking for something with a history and something that's vintage and. Um, yeah. you know, pulling from a different industry. So, 
I do have a large collection of Moonstone from the original Moonstone days. Just oh, wow. so you know, you're going to wow. have to make it out here with a yeah. trailer. Yeah, I'd love, love yeah. to at some point. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I, I'm excited for the future. I know you and I have talked about how do we best, um, you know, preserve stories. And um, in some ways, it's, you know, it's, it's great that now I think everyone is realizing how easy it is to connect um, you know, even though we've had a few technical difficulties on this call, it's relatively easy to jump on a zoom call and, mm-hmm. and record stories. And, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to continuing to help preserve oral histories. Um, cause there's so much more that I don't know. Uh, you know, every time I have one of these calls, I learn something new about the industry and develop a, a, a deeper appreciation for it. Um, and a t- an attachment for, for brands that I had never heard of before. I, I told you, um, you know, we did a whole segment on the Arcata region. I didn't know anything about that region and the companies that came out of it. And, you know, from the conversations that, that um, you know, I had with Bruce and then with the founders of Down Home, a company that really kicked off everything in that region. Um, you know, we learned that Yakima Racks originally had its origin in that region. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, it's piecing together this history that... Um, you know, there's, there's real value in that. And I think people will, will appreciate it, but it takes people like you to actually rececognize, Oh, that moonstone pieces is significant, right? I need to go and save it. It kind of takes individuals like you and me and Bruce and, and others to, to, you know, recognize the history or have at least have an interest and then go out and save it. Yeah, there was a patent pending or patent, uh, not patent pending, patented baffle construction that most people you don't see from the outside of it. Hmm. And, you know, it'd be uh, skipping to the future conversations you and I should have is recording the big missteps. Maybe if we dare to mention companies, but big misses where the designers were completely knowing that this was going to be what would put their, not their name on the map. Designers never get their names on the map, but put the company into a success, uh, successful run, but then are turned down and that aren't, um, uh, are just essentially cut off as a valid way to go. And you see that way more than, than the public ever sees. The most, even a company won't see that except in the inner working circles where decisions are made. And when decisions are good, we know about them. When decisions are not good and they make it to market, we see the outcome of something that goes down. But the ideas that never make it out of development, that if they could have would have changed some history. Those are and some that's the, a topic that would be great to talk to you about. I, I would love to. Yeah, we got to just keep a list of of the different uh, different conversations we could have. I I follow a few um, designers on on Instagram who, you know, some of them worked for Nike or you know Adidas or you know whatever you, Patagonia. You know, they've they've been able to go through and work for different companies and and design product and. And a lot of them have like kept materials from that time and, and, you know, 
with some separation, you know, some time away from the companies, you know, a lot of them have been reflecting on, on their time there. And, and sometimes they'll share, Oh, here's a prototype for something that never happened. You know, I I'm with you. It's those stories are, are, are especially interesting as you see, Oh, what was the thing that almost was? Um, and those right. stories. Don't- and it's the, yeah, it's the outtake product. If we can find a piece, I do have a lot of outtakes, but it also is the story of why it wasn't accepted. Right. That I yeah. still feel um, I still have a job at Nike if it had gone through that sort of thing. Right. Totally. No, I love that. And and the other piece that and we can stop taping if you like, but the resources like the zipper card in the 80s had 18 colors on it. That was it. And before that, even, you know, it was 10 colors. Then it was two colors. And that I still know all those 18 color numbers mm. that you couldn't get any other color that wasn't possible. And you had to order your zippers before you designed the product, before you knew where the zipper was going to, because the zippers took the longest to order of anything. So I was doing work with Sierra Designs on their entire new outerwear line in 1998-99, but I had to place the order for all the zippers, the zipper lengths, as well as the color, before we had anything else decided. That that's a whole nother conversation that would be really interesting, right? It's like the tools of design and the evolution of the tools and the resources that were available over time. There's yeah. a whole a whole lot of different avenues that we could take this, but but I yeah. think that that's you know I, I think there's so much value in that, um, and I, I think in some ways you know it's you know I've been talking to a lot of people, especially during COVID, and and they've been reflecting, right? Mm-hmm. It's like they've been sitting still, they're in now at home, they're opening up the old boxes of stuff from, from, you know, the company that they worked for and they're, they're thinking about that time. Um, so it's an interesting time, um, to, to reflect back and, and then, you know, catch people in that moment, uh, you know, of reflection and, and tease out some of those stories. So. Yeah. And another topic to take a note of is you, you mentioned brands you know, was I in between the brand process? And I believe I really witnessed it at the, where everything, every company was in its own box to being able to take things to, to Asia for production. But it wasn't like, okay, it's cheaper over there. Let's just move over to Asia. There were a lot of reasons from American production not just price that made that extremely helpful for where the industry went. And I can speak to what I witnessed in, you can cut me off and we can do that in another conversation, but a lot of the knowledge of most people have is that we just wanted to take to a cheaper price. Well, it was way more complex than that. That's it's easy to simplify it and make a boogeyman out of mm-hmm. something we don't understand, right? So I yeah, that would be fun to dive into that too, because there I agree, there's there's so much more there. Um and you know, I and you know, a few years ago I was able to go visit some factories over there and and the technical expertise is incredible, right? And now just doesn't exist here 
right? Yeah. And, and there's some incredible craftsmanship that happens there. Um, and made in China shouldn't be a, uh, shouldn't be a negative, right? Because exactly. in, in most cases, there's, there's some really quality product that is made there. And there's one factory in particular that I've, I've visited and they, they've wanted to overturn that perception, right? It's like, well, made, you know, we're, very, we're making very technical product here yeah. um, and we're proud of that badge. So that would yeah. be a very interesting conversation. And most consumers don't realize that every single piece of a textile product is put together by hand manipulation. Mm -hmm. And that the idea that we can just mass produce with, with more automation is, it, you know, there's so many areas we could take these conversations. And I really do hope we can continue. I would love to be part of some group discussions and helping pulls from people that would add to a topic that I would love to, to collaborate with. Well, let's let's have a lot more of these conversations then. Um, I guess we'll we'll wrap it up here. But how's the if people want to stay in touch with you? Learn more about your background, what you're currently doing. We didn't even touch on you know we kind of went Columbia and then you know you're consulting, right? Uh, there's so much more there. Um, what? But yeah, if people been if, close to twenty five, thirty, yeah, thirty years of freelancing. <laughs> If yeah, if people want to stay in touch with you um, or learn more about what you're currently working on, how would they do that? Well, certainly email outdoors with an S at the end at rockisland.com. I have a, a minuscule website because I believe that my best selling point is word of mouth and what I'm known for, which is that kind of being able to visualize this entire uh, concept into the future and the reasons and the whys and the, a lot of the pieces. Uh, email, uh, the website would point you to me. It's Tracy Cottingham with two T's, C-O-T-T-I-N-G-H-A-M. But uh, you can direct my cell number, which is 360 Five, eight. That's brand new. So it's, and I appreciate being able to talk to you. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor industry leaders and enthusiasts, subscribe and listen wherever podcasts are found or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast.